Nine Lives, the debut album from Catalyst, grips with infinite possibility and reflects the contemporary Los Angeles jazz scene. Catalyst is more than a nine-piece band. It's a collective of producers, composers, musicians, and writers who represent a who's who of the Los Angeles jazz community. You can listen to the album on all of the major music platforms or purchase a copy through bandcamp.com. Catalyst with a K, and the album is Nine Lives. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. One of the challenges of conducting clinical trials is finding enough patients to include in control arms of a study. This can slow the pace of drug development and increase its cost. Unlearn AI is seeking to change that by using its artificial intelligence platform to create digital twins of trial participants that can serve as control arms in studies. We spoke to Charles Fisher, founder and CEO of Unlearn, about the concept of digital twins, the potential to accelerate clinical trials with their use, and why the company is focusing on the area of complex neurologic diseases. The model that's used to create the digital twin needs data from patients being tracked over time. So we need to be able to see that progression over time in thousands of patients. However, when you're talking about an individual patient, uh, for Alzheimer's disease, we just need their particular point in time. So just their first time point um, to be able to make a prediction about how they're going to progress. That is disease specific. Um, so in certain cases, we can actually find that if you had maybe two visits or three visits, you had a little more information about the patient, you could make better predictions uh, about how that patient is going to progress. So it's, it does vary a little bit, uh, but in general, the training data are longitudinal, and then the data at test time when you actually use the model uh, would be a single point in time. And what have you done to, to validate the platform? Well, there's a lot of things. Uh, I would say in some ways, validating the platform is more work than building the platform, more work than building the platform, right? So uh, for Alzheimer's disease, we, you know, we started working on this particular disease area probably two and a half or three years ago. Um, and so the first thing that we did uh, is we had a paper come out in Nature Scientific Reports peer-reviewed uh, publication. Uh, now it must have come out well over a year ago. And, but we, you know, peer review takes a very long time. So that paper was written two years ago, right? Even though it only got published one year ago. And well, basically what we do there is we, we will take 80% of the training data we have, we'll train the model, we'll leave 20% of the data out, and then we'll make predictions about these other 20% of the patients and making sure that all of the predictions that we make are, are really good. So that's one, that's a very early. Um, we've done much, much more along those directions. Uh, 
We've presented uh, about our model, presented data to FDA and the Office of Neurosciences. We have, uh, we have done a number of retrospective studies where we can go back and look at previously completed clinical trials and reanalyze them and make sure that we're, we're getting uh, better results out of those clinical trials uh, than, than how they were originally run. Um, and then we also are working in ongoing prospective clinical trials now uh, and working with different pharmaceutical partners, uh, both in ways that are where, where our customers, these collaborators are getting value from the use of these models, but also that provide more validation uh, for our platform. In the discussions with the FDA, what kind of validation have they been seeking? With the FDA, it's, this is a really interesting area to, to dig into. Um, I think that what we, what we basically did with the FDA is we, we showed them some data looking at, we would take patients who were in placebo control arms of trials, and then we would create digital twins of those patients. That so now you have the real patient receiving placebo, and you have the model predicting what would happen if they received placebo. So now you have a direct way to measure how well is the model doing at actually capturing placebo behavior in these Alzheimer's clinical trials. And so those are the kinds of data that we presented to the FDA in a meeting in March of, of this year. Now, looking again at, at, you know, we, because we simulate so many things about these patients, um, we have to do really comprehensive uh, evaluation protocols, evaluating all of the different things that we're predicting. Um, but then the, the other thing, of course, is when you actually go to use these digital twins in clinical trials, you know, uh, that actually gets into another aspect of just the context of use, because there are different ways that you can take these digital twins and incorporate them into the final analysis of the treatment effect. And each one of those is really discussed with the regulators on a case-by-case -case basis, because again, you're adapting the use of the digital twins to the particular problem that the pharmaceutical company is facing in their trial. You're focusing on complex neurological diseases and in particular Alzheimer's disease. Why complex neurological diseases in general and Alzheimer's disease specifically? Well, I think the, the first thing comes down to an unmet need. These are areas where clinical trials are very long and they're very expensive. They include enormous numbers of patient volunteers and we're not really having any success in developing new treatments. So you know, anything that we can do to make those trials more efficient, to make them more ethical and better for the patients who volunteer, and to speed up drug development in those areas so that we can finally get effective therapies to patients, something that we really need. So that's, that's the first thing is that the, this large unmet need. The second thing is there's availability of data. Um, you know, as a machine learning company, we really rely not only on there being a lot of data, but on those data of being very high quality. And because there's this long history of many, many companies trying to develop drugs for these areas and many of those drugs failing, there's an enormous amount of data that we can draw on to learn about how the disease progresses. Um, but we are, are eventually looking to expand across disease areas. So even though our initial focus has been in these more complex longitudinal neurologic diseases, we are looking to expand into you know, rare diseases, into immuno immunological diseases, into oncology. So because we take a really data-driven, AI-based approach, we have the ability to eventually expand into those indications as well. How well understood does the disease have to be for digital twins to work well? 
or, or do you simply need the patient data for these to work? Well, I think that we, we really need the patient data. That's the most important thing. We're not putting in any sort of assumptions about how the disease actually works. Um, and, you know, you think about Alzheimer's as a particular disease area. I would say that we have hypotheses about, you know, what actually causes that disease. And we have hypotheses about the underlying disease biology. But there are a lot of things in Alzheimer's that really aren't understood, right? We have uh, amyloid beta and these plaques, protein-based plaques that form in the brain of patients with Alzheimer's. And that certainly seems to be kind of a hallmark of the disease. Uh, but then we also know that a lot of the genetic signals that we see are immune-related genes. And other genetic signals that we see, the strongest genetic signal we see is a cholesterol metabolism-related gene, right? So how do you put all of that information together of these three different processes to get a, a whole view of what that disease is, is like in, in the pathogenesis of it? I would say we really don't have that today. Um, and so, you know, we really aren't focusing so much on these disease areas where we, we know everything about that disease. I think that we're focusing to a degree more on these disease areas where we have a lot of data, where there is complexity and some uncertainty and how we can leverage AI-based tools to really capture that complexity and hopefully alleviate the uncertainty in some of these upcoming trials. You referenced the study that was published a little more than a year ago. This was in Nature Research on the use of machine learning for forecasting Alzheimer's disease progression. This was a, a proof of concept of the technological feasibility of your approach. What exactly did it show? Well, you know, there's a whole lot of things that are very different when you are thinking about machine learning for these kinds of clinical data. Um, so most of the machine learning uh, research that has gone on to this day has been really within just big internet technology companies. Um, so if you think about the total amount that's been invested, it's like 99% of investment has been focused on those problems. So there is actually a real question as to whether or not we can take tools that were developed for internet problems and then directly apply them to problems in clinical trials or clinical data or electronic health records data or how much we have to adapt those new technologies to actively, actually make use of these different data sets. And so what we were really looking there was, can we even do it in a sense? Like, can we take these longitudinal health information and train a model that's able to create realistic patient simulation? And I think one of the key things that we were focusing on there was a concept of creating simulations that we'd say are statistically indistinguishable from real patients. So what we basically mean by that is we would take electronic medical records from real patients and then electronic medical records that are output by our simulation model. And we kind of mix them all up. So we might have 100 real patients and 100 simulated patients. And then we can see whether or not there is any way, anything that we could find where you could tell which one is which. Could you unmix those data and say these ones were real and these ones were fake? I mean, if you could do that, then that would demonstrate that the model's not very good, actually. It would demonstrate that it's, there's a big difference. Um, and so what we basically found is that we tend to be able uh, to distinguish which one is simulated and which one is real about 51 or 52% of the time. Um, and so that, what that basically means is we're pretty much randomly guessing as to which one's a real patient and which one's a simulated patient, demonstrating, you know, how, really how accurate these types of generative machine learning models can be for creating synthetic patient data. 
And have you been able to wade in at all into actual clinical trials yet? Have you been able to use a kind of a work this in parallel with control arms? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there are really two different styles of, of project. Well, actually three, if you go back many years, three styles years ago, but right now there's really two styles of project. Um, one of them uh, are really where we are adding these digital twins into ongoing clinical trials for Alzheimer's disease. So because we only take the data at baseline before that patient receives the treatment, we can actually do this at any point in time during the trial. We just get their baseline data, create the digital twin, and then incorporate it into the analysis at the end. Um, and we're actually doing that now in a phase three clinical trial uh, in Alzheimer's disease for, for a medical device. So it's a medical device aimed at, you know, uh, alleviating the symptoms and, and treating slowing progression of, of Alzheimer's disease. And your medical devices are an interesting space for this kind of technology because it's very difficult in some cases to think about creating a true placebo for a medical device. You know, you might have a big machine that patients are being hooked up to that's providing a treatment. And how do you actually think about placeboing that? So bringing in these simulations as another source of information about how patients would respond understanding of care is another way of, of kind of getting around that problem. And then the other thing is, you know, actually incorporating using digital twins in our knowledge of what they can do for clinical trials to design more effective clinical trials a priori. So before the clinical trial starts, actually designing a better clinical trial. And that's a bit of a longer process uh, because you're getting it before the trial starts in its design phase, doing validation, and then actually working towards starting it and then running the clinical trial. But those are, are types of discussions that we're having now with pharmaceutical companies. And how do you think it might make a clinical trial more efficient to, to do that? Would you be simulating results before you actually do the trial and thereby might adjust endpoints? Well, the biggest thing is really in how many patients will you need in order to achieve the statistical power that you want to know if your treatment's effective. And, you know, so let's say if you're typically running an Alzheimer's clinical trial, you know, even now, a lot of these trials, the big ones are, you know, two or 3,000 patients. Um, and what we can show is that by incorporating digital twins into the design of these trials, that you could reduce the number of patients in those trials significantly. Let's say by 25%. It depends a little bit on how you want to do it. But you might be able to reduce the number of patients required by 25% while ensuring that you still have the same statistical properties uh, at the end. And that can make, that can reduce the cost of your study a lot, and it can reduce the time it takes to complete enrollment by a significant, uh, significant fraction. Is there any concern that using a digital twin might lead to a greater placebo effect in clinical trial outcomes? Well, the, I think that the, so I don't really see how that would happen. Um, I, I guess would be the short answer. Well, I mean, everyone in the trial would, would be under the impression they're on the actual study drug and that there'd be no question as to whether they might be receiving a placebo. Right. So, so it depends on the use case. Um, so the, the, the possibility of creating trials where every single patient is receiving the active treatment and no one is receiving a placebo, I think that's a very attractive in a lot of ways. 
Um, but the placebo effect being greater, which it, it could happen, is the, the, not the biggest problem with that particular design, right? So there are problems with single arm trials um, that actually no statistical method, no machine learning method, that there's nothing that you can do to guarantee that the result of that trial won't somehow be biased um, if you don't have some patients in the trial receiving a placebo. And that, that includes the, the work that we do. There's no, you can't guarantee it. And basically the reason is, let's imagine that, you know, for Alzheimer's disease, I just said, we, we don't actually necessarily know all that much about the disease biology. We're not sure of it. So what if, you know, uh, we start running a trial today um, and, and then 10 years from now we discover, oh, there's this new uh, gene that's really actually very associated with Alzheimer's outcomes. And then we go back and we say, okay, well, all the patients in the trial who were receiving the treatment, they were, say, had a particular allele for that gene that would cause them to progress more slowly. And all the patients who were in our earlier clinical trials that we trained the model on, they had an allele for that gene that caused them to progress quickly. So now, if you actually look at those data, you don't know if the difference that you observe at the end is because of the, the gene that these patients had or because the treatment was effective. And because you didn't know about it, you couldn't have measured it, there's no way that you can go back and correct for it because you just didn't measure it. So this is a generic problem with single-arm clinical trials. Um, and so a lot of the work that we are doing is actually in creating new kinds of clinical, randomized controlled trial designs that are more efficient but are still randomized controlled trials. So the basic way this works is that when a patient enrolls in the trial at their first visit, we take their baseline data and then we create this digital twin. And then that patient is then randomized to active treatment or to placebo, maybe not with the same probability. So maybe, maybe 10 patients are randomized to active treatment for every, every you know, three patients that are randomized to placebo or, or some ratio, right? So we might have more patients being randomized to active treatment, but there are still some patients receiving placebo. Um, and that ensures that it's still this randomized trial. You still have some uncertainty about which particular arm you're going to be in. But we can show that by using digital twins within that type of design, you can still reduce trial sizes by a significant amount. So you're not going to eliminate half the patients, but you might eliminate 25% of the required number of patients while still keeping the trial randomized, still ensuring that it's unbiased, and having all of the different properties that you would like out of randomized controlled trials. So. I think one of the things that's really important, you know, it's really, a, I'd say, a founding, you know, for a thing at the company that's really at our core is it's not enough just to make clinical trials efficient, right? Um, if we just wanted to make drug development efficient, we could just stop running clinical trials, right? You could just take the drugs and just put them right into people. Um, it's, it's not, that's, so that's not a really good approach. That what we really need to do is think about ways that we can leverage technology to make clinical trials more efficient without lowering the bar of evidence that's required, you know, for saying that a drug is really safe and effective. And so that's really the type of thing that, that we're especially focused on. We've seen some willingness on the part of the FDA to allow the use of natural history studies to serve as comparator arms in lieu of a placebo arm. Why would using a digital twin be preferable to, say, a natural history? control? Mm -hmm. Well, there are really two reasons. It, it boils down ultimately to, to the same point. Um, when you are looking at these other methods that pull in natural history or other real-world data sources, 
what they'll do is try to find patients, groups of patients who look the, who have similar characteristics at the start of the study. Um, and so that, but what we are doing is actually predicting the outcome of the patients, right? So you might say that we're trying to find patients who will have similar outcomes as the actual patients in the study. And that enables us to, to run trials where you actually are potentially significantly higher powered compared to studies that have external controls like natural history controls. But it also enables us to use statistical methods to ensure that the trials uh, have what's called a controlled type one error rate. So that by running this trial using a digital twin based control arm, uh, or incorporating digital twins into your control arm, I should say, into your analysis, that you can ensure that the trial uh, will not is not more likely to have a false positive result. So if the drug is is not effective, it's not more likely that you say it, it is effective. Um, and that's not true for these other approaches that rely on natural history or other types of matching approaches for, for real world data. Those approaches, in, they, they increase the possibility that your trial will be false positive, and they always do. Um, and so the, the, the real thing that we've seen with FDA has really been a cost-benefit calculation, where if you're looking about a very rare disease where you just don't have enough patients to be able to run a well-controlled trial with enough power, they might say, well, you know, it's really technically infeasible. So it's worth it to potentially have a higher probability of a false positive in order to just be able to run the trial in the first place. So go ahead and run it with a, with a natural history control group. Um, and so those types of things tend to be used in special situations, uh, you know, rare diseases or really small genetically defined patient populations. And whereas what we're going after are really all clinical trials, right? Uh, so not just special circumstances, but a fundamentally better way to run randomized controlled trials in general. There certainly is a, a real need for this type of synthetic control arm in rare diseases. Are you hampered by the lack of patients to build the type of base of data you need to make a digital twin in the case of rare diseases? Depends on the disease. Um, and it's really ultimately, if you had the data to do a natural history study, then you would have the data to build a digital twin based control group. Um, so the, the thing that helps us a little bit in the way that we do the modeling is that we are looking at how patients change over time. And so the way that sort of, you can think about the size of a data set that we use is not just the number of patients. So we might have a thousand patients, um, but it's the number of patients times how long we have observed those patients. So if we've observed a thousand patients, you know, for a hundred time points, we actually have a data set that's a hundred thousand different different sizes, uh, size of a hundred thousand. So, by taking a rare disease, even though we may not have a lot of patients to look at, if you have a good natural history data set where you followed those patients over time, we could probably still create a, a digital twin based control group for that type of disease. What's the path forward? What are the next steps in moving this toward full use in clinical studies? Well, I think for us, um, this, this really is kind of like a very uh, inflection point moment right now, actually, where we're preparing a sort of a huge data dump of information, of validation data um, about our approach in Alzheimer's disease, uh, working on publishing. I think the game is to publish four more scientific papers uh, in the next month. So we have sort of a lot of that work to do. 
Um, and then we are preparing for more regulatory interactions, uh, both inside and outside of the United States, um, and really working on some partnerships with, with sponsors to uh, get these types of digital twin-based control groups incorporated in some of the larger upcoming Alzheimer's disease clinical trials. Um, because we think that, you know, this demonstration of its utility in Alzheimer's and the value that our customers get in terms of faster clinical trials with fewer subjects and the ability, even within these faster clinical trials for the FDA and other stakeholders to um, get interpretable, reliable information out of these trials that once we demonstrate that in Alzheimer's, then we'll be scaling out uh, across diseases as quickly as we can. Charles Fisher, founder and CEO of Unlearn AI. Charles, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.